Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of Exploring Kodawari. This time, we're speaking with computer scientist, engineer, and good friend Drew Shapiro. Drew studied electrical engineering and computer science at MIT and also minored in music. So when I called him up a few weeks ago, we decided that we could do a really cool episode about the science and technology of how sound works. I think our mission for this episode can be summed up with two complimentary quotes. The first is the famous Arthur C. Clarke quote that says, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. After all, the journey that my voice took to get to you right now, including traveling through fiber optic cables at nearly the speed of light, seems pretty magical. But a competing variant of that quote, although I'm not sure who said it, goes like this. Any sufficiently analyzed magic is indistinguishable from science. So we decided to get into some of the science and technology of how music and sound work. We answered questions such as, what is the difference between analog and digital sound? What are the different methods of storing information? And how does your computer rebuild that information into sound waves? How does digital compression work? AKA, how can we compress a sound file into the MP3 file that you are listening to my voice from? It's a file that contains almost 10 times fewer bits of information, yet to your ear, it essentially sounds the same as the original file. And finally, we tried to go meta and describe the complete journey that our voices had to take to get from our voice boxes into your headphones. The conversation did end up being a bit long, so I've separated it into two parts. If you're hearing this on the day that it's published and you're hungry to hear part two, first off, thanks. And secondly, worry not because part two will be published uh, just a few days after this. All right. If you would like to support our project, please consider making a donation through the PayPal links on our website. It will help us to get better and better and to keep content coming. Or you can just help us out by recommending an episode to a friend. Whatever you do, though, we're just so happy to see more and more listeners enjoying our content. So thanks for listening. Thank you, Drew, for coming on and enjoy the episode. All right, we're going. Drew Shapiro, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> um, so can you briefly introduce yourself, like give your background in computer science and engineering and just kind of, I know you can't say details about the work you do, but like just say what, what generally what you do for a living? Sure. Um, well, I'm a software engineer by trade and I play piano uh, as an amateur, uh, kind of. Like We've played together, that. right? We have on several occasions. Yeah. Uh, you are, you have surpassed me in piano skills, probably. Well, I mean, it depends how much you're practicing these days. <laughs> more than... <laughs> More than a couple months ago due to okay. the pandemic. But right. uh, yeah, so I studied electrical engineering and computer science, and I had a minor in music and was really interested in sort of, you know, the technology of making music, where whether it's like the audio production that you would see like in a studio or even sort of how does a synthesizer work? That's sort of a big theme yeah. of what I, you know, am interested in. And you have one, right? I have a couple. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I, I uh, have this uh, big Korg 88 key that I use as like my primary keyboard. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm getting into like soft sense or software sense a little bit more. Uh, generally like to take things apart, put them back together. Hopefully they can go back together, that sort of thing. So fixing yeah. my own keyboard when I can. You like working with things. Yeah, yeah. I like... I like breaking things and fixing things. It, they usually, you know, 
go hand in hand. <laughs> Which you can't do if you're like a neurosurgeon or something, right? You can't just, you know, take brains apart and then put them back together. You can only do the apart thing with like cadavers, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's it's not very ethical, but that is, <laughs> I think, how they figured out some of the first uh, things about human anatomy, right? Yeah, brain-body connections. Like, hey, this area like, makes the arm go like this. <laughs> or, or like, uh, um, they got hit in the head here. Now they can no longer oh, speak yeah. or, you know, different, different types of aphasia, like knock out a part of your brain. But right. yeah, that's, that's no way to study a system. <laughs> <laughs> you want the, the, the manual, but we don't have. So how much hands-on electronic stuff have you done in terms of like actually building circuitry and, and that kind of stuff? So my second job out of college was working on um, audio equipment. Uh, we were looking at, you know, basically creating an audio interface with a bunch of different uh, physical knobs and sliders and stuff like that, basically like a big mixer. Mm -hmm. uh, so during that time, I was doing some layout, going through the process of getting stuff manufactured and validating that it did what we designed it to do. And that is very slow. So uh, I ended up kind of moving away from that part of uh, the work because it is a lot of a lot of magic <laughs> as far as I'm concerned at this point. Like, um, you know, I did not study physics, but once you start working on hardware and thinking about fields and things like this, it gets very complex. And yeah, uh, I yeah. did have experience, you know, assembling some stuff, like I said, designing circuit boards, multi-layer, things like that, but ended up moving away from it because I just found that software is so much quicker. You know, I can type something in, and compile or, you know, re rerun a test or something like that and get immediate feedback that this worked or this didn't. Sure. Yeah, the, the turnaround time is um, you can fix some code, then see if that fixed it. And whereas if you're building a, even a mixer, right, it's a, a day's project to open it up, change something that you think could be causing the problem, and then find out if you were right that it actually was causing the problem, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we're talking really, really low level. So you, you break down a system into its component or modules or, you know, whatever sort of phraseology you want to use. But uh, you take sort of a black box and you break it down into smaller black boxes until you get to the sort of subsystem that you care about. So like I was working on um, memory reading. So there's a lot of uh, reading and writing when you're working with audio processing. Right. And those are, it's basically a system that has to work like a multiplier faster than the rest of your system because it takes time. There's like latency. That's the so, part that I totally find magical about technology, let's say, of when I edit this podcast, right? I'll do all sorts of post-production things to it. Some of it's automated now with with um, another program I use, but it goes in there and does loudness normalization, compression of the of like me and Yanka's voice being different and then your voice mm -hmm. and multi-track analysis and then a final mix down to make sure everything's only peaking by uh, you know all the all these details and I've, I think like how the heck does that work? Um, like I understand I think better how my voice could be going into a mixer and, and coming out and all of that, but the manipulating of all that information and how a computer can store it. It's like holding it here while it messes with that. It saves the original copy just in case the whole thing mm -hmm. like crashes, right? I mean, how many times on Yonka's computer, which is what we use, um, it's only got four gigabytes of RAM. It's an older MacBook. And when I'm editing audio, sometimes the computer will just go, Ugh! 
and like crash because <laughs> it, it just didn't find enough processing space or power or whatever the phraseology would be to Oops. manipulate the hour and a half podcast properly you know yeah that the hour and a half part sounds like what's hurting your uh, yeah yeah your, your i could probably there. split it into separate uh segments and then that would be yeah easier. and that that is a, a common like uh, pattern in engineering is you know t- how do you deal with scale and right. how do you break things down and uh you know you're, you're talking about like post-production uh which you have the liberty of waiting for that process to go through when you when you're dealing with something like live effects um say adding reverb at a at a concert to the vocals or something like that um you that's mean all like this whoa <laughs> <laughs> yeah did you just enter a tunnel um yeah that that stuff is really interesting to me because it sounds so complex like you know if, if you go online you try to buy uh different reverb um vsts or some some other sort of component you could you could get hardware that does it you can do um you know, uh, right. There's software dog. versions, right? Yeah. And it's like, how do they have 20 different rooms? You know, like, right. how are they getting the, the different echoes? And is that actually representative? And it turns out it is like, there's, there's mathematical ways to sort of capture right. the, the signature of a room and then apply it. Right. Like how they big also, is the bathroom you want your voice to echo in? <laughs> is it, you know, is it ceramic or is it marble? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So, uh, there's this, uh, there's this concept called the system response. This is from signal processing. Um, if you want to like find the Wikipedia page, mm-hmm. uh, but essentially when you, and th- it actually reminds me of things like style transfer too. You're sort of like saying like, make this sound sound like it's in this other room, right. uh, which is similar to those like deep mind or uh, neural net things where they like make your selfie look like Picasso or something like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the visual version of, Right. So there's something that we perceive as hearing humans uh, that is captured by some mathematical equation. And and in the case of reverb, it's this thing called the system response. So imagine you go into like three different rooms and you essentially like hit uh, a note, right, in each of those rooms. And then you hit a note in a what's called an anechoic. Well, I can't even say this word. Anechoic chamber. That's the one. <laughs> That's sort of like your control in the experiment. Like right. you, you would be able to understand the differences and sort of subtract out the yeah. control. Yanka, those are the um, the padded rooms where no sound reflects off the wall oh, at all. Okay. And, and so people are, are being, said to start hallucinating. Yeah. They start hallucinating in there because oh, so when you have no external input, like you can't hear any room noise, you start to hear like your internal organs shifting around and your blood <laughs> and your heart beating and stuff. Yeah, people start That's freaking so out. interesting. Huh. Veritasium, the, the YouTube channel, did a, a video in, I think there's a really, really um, expensive anechoic chamber at some Ohio University research lab or something. And um, he made he made a cool video. I'll, I'll try to remember to link it. Yeah, yeah that, that's their control, that's right? That's where they, that would be, you know, yeah. from there, then they say, okay, that's no sound reverb at all. And now let's play around with different surfaces and, and so that would be a good way to like to compare A to B, right? For us, when sure. we have the full sample uh, or the full, you know, uh, yeah, clip. Uh, but there's there's actually uh, we could talk about this more up close later. But if you had a a wave file, 
of, of some sound, you, you'd basically be looking at a, a bar graph, right? Like it, the, the sound is going up and down. You, you've seen this, this visual of like audio. Right. Um, and, and that is when zoomed out, I mean, there's, there's a 44 K samples per second. I believe. Right. Yeah. 40, <laughs> 44,100. That's yeah. right. 44.1. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's all these different types of resolution, both in sort of how many samples am I taking and also what different values do I allow? You know, mm-hmm. uh, you, you told me, uh, you have some like eight bit compressed versions. Yeah. So of, later of the intro, on, so. I'm going to play a few examples of me talking one where it's just an uncompressed wave file and one where I made it compressed, um, like telephones. I, I know cell phones now use this like voice LTE thing that's a little bit better, but just the standard telephone compression, which um, cuts out some frequencies and also cuts out, therefore, a lot of the data and compresses it. Mm-hmm. And then I did the same thing with our intro music with um, Yanka playing the Bach. And yeah, so we'll get to that for sure. Um, yeah. I so suppose the- before we get it too deep into any details, can we just oh, yeah. kind of get on the table like a, um, a definition of some of these like analog versus digital things. So what can you, can you define it as best you can? Like what analog is and then how digital is different. Right. So we, we experience the world in analog, right? Um, There are these continuously varying pressure waves that we call sound that are, that are hitting our ear and essentially shaking hairs inside this little spindle inside our ear called the cochlea. And the cochlea does this cool thing that like pulls out different frequencies and then tells your brain like the high frequency is going, the low frequency is going. And, and over time, we, we basically perceive this to be sound. Uh, but what's cool is that, you know, that could be different for different people. That could be different for you at different ages as, you know, your ear wears and tears. But uh, the sound outside sort of just exists Right. And when we try to capture it, and this is sort of going from the analog to the digital, there's some loss of fidelity. We, we choose how many samples per second. We choose what dynamic range, or, right. you know, how, how many uh, bits we use to represent different levels of loudness. So you can think of to get into the Kodawari uh, space a little bit like analog is sort of this ideal uh, that it's very hard to reproduce when somebody uh, even when you're, let's say, recording to, to vinyl or something that's a little bit less uh, technologically discreet, um, you're, you're, you're making the grooves go up and down, just like the sound is going up and down. And when you reproduce that sound, it is also sort of continuous. But again, there's loss of fidelity because right. how fine is the needle that's etching into the Yeah, wax? there's always limitations involved, right? Right. So technological or just like practical, like I think I was reading about vinyl. So vinyls as compared to um, CDs, which are digital, vinyl records are analog. And they have to, when they press the the grooves into the vinyl, they actually do this compression that cuts out most of the lower frequencies because a low frequency, the waveform would be very (laughs) big. And so they said each vinyl would only hold about five minutes of music if they left, if they printed the full waveform. So what they do is compress it. And then when the 
the player is reading that signal, it knows how to mathematically add those frequencies back in so that when it comes out the speaker, you hear the actual music with the bass. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. And it's the same reason why high frequencies are dangerous too, because with low frequencies, the needle hops too much and can start causing problems. And with high frequencies where the, the, the grooves are too close together, the needle bounces too much and, and, and bad shit happens too. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a compromise of like, here's our medium that we chose to sort of map the sound waves onto. I think right. I sent and you a video today of an electron microscope. I'll link this in the episode notes. An electron microscope looking at how a needle rides the grooves of a record as it spins. And then that causes an ele- a pulsating electrical signal, I guess. And the rest of the details, I have no freaking idea how it works. But <laughs> but the thing is, I have a question. I'm like five topics behind right now. <laughs> um, so when you compress it, like you basically simplify it and like lower the quality in a way. Is that correct? Yeah. There, there's a couple different definitions of compression. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So there, there's sort of loudness compression, which changes the dynamic range. Um, I, I would call what you're talking about like like digital compression you're digital, basically yeah. you're making the size of the file smaller i see because like right? vinyl sounds so beautiful in their own way like they don't mm-hmm. sound like compressed in a way that like well so it's reduced you people know say I mean? that and so the idea is i kind of was watching some videos on vinyl today and a thought popped into my head that it's you know the expression like the map is not the territory meaning like maps are representations of geography and a coastline is actually infinitely long, depending on, do you want to get down to the plank, plank length of each, you know, atom in, and, and measure that and measure each angle? No, we, we choose a certain resolution and say that's good enough to map what the coastline of, you know, this country looks like or something. Sure. And, and, and digital reproduction of audio is, is definitely like that. You know, you, you're going to evoke a lot of the same perceptions, but unless you're doing sort of a side-by-side, like you're right. going to do later, y- your brain will, will fill in the blanks. Right, like, so if uh, you see the coast of the U.S. East Coast, you're going to recognize it even at a pretty low resolution where the, the the details of, oh, this part of the land goes in by 20 feet, like that's not relevant to the coastline mm-hmm. shape. When now, what's, what's interesting about audio versus um, visuals, because uh, in academia, there's there's a lot of people who focus on those as two different domains, right? Mm-hmm. Like signal processing. Um, we do a lot of very interesting things with our audio processing where you can basically superimpose in audio, like in a way that you can't really in visuals. So, you know, the idea of two images blending together does not happen as much in nature as two sounds blending together, for instance. Mm. Like usually we see like occlusion or other visual phenomena. Our ears uh, can be tricked more easily than our eyes. Well, I as I said that, that sounds of, yeah, that sounds <laughs> <laughs> there there are some really interesting audio hallucinate or audio um I don't even know what you would call them, but like illusions, like optical yes, illusions. Yes, yeah, they're like optical illusions. Yeah, and this is another one you could link to is the barbershop pole effect, right? Mm. Um so the barbershop pole spins and it's a spiral, but it looks when it just spins in place, it looks like it's going up forever or down forever, depending on which way you're rotating yeah. it. And you could take a note and make it swoop up at one time. But if you have multiple notes swooping up together and as they like sort of exit that range of frequencies and you have new notes come in from the bottom, you get the perception that 
all the notes are moving up infinitely forever and ever and ever. But it's yes, like I've you're heard, you're actually just like sort of shifting your focus. Yep, uh, yep. Within within that sound, I'll see if I can remember to link it. But it's basically I'm not familiar with. Um, this I wonder how your your brain with perfect pitch would react to this. But it tricks your brain into thinking you're hearing a tone that's just infinitely <coughs> going up. But it's like how could it infinitely go up? It's got to leave your uh, humans can. But after basically a while, only hear, hear so high. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Does it not disappear? But it's not really going up. It's so the perception of it going up. I Much see. like it, this, the barbershop thing looks like it's spinning up, but it's not really. I see. So in the yeah. in the barbershop uh, pole, you know, there's like a blue and a, and a red line or something like that. And and that's sort of to help your eye see uh, a contrast moving up, right? If they were all red lines, you might actually see it more as spinning than moving up. But if you, this is conjecture, but... If you think about the barbershop pole audio, you have the same idea of multiple notes moving together. And mm, you know, if yeah. you were to track one of them, you're right. It would go up until it's out of our range of hearing. But if you have these multiple sort of moving along the spectrogram and when one exits sort of what is perceivable, there's another one right behind it. The net effect is that you hear the sort of chorus of, of tones continuously moving up and up and up and up and up. Yeah. It definitely tricked me. I, w- I would be curious if I like sat with that recording for a while, if I could kind of tease the notes apart and then figure out what's really happening, like and hear the introduction of a new frequency or something. But I'm pretty sure they, the point is like, you can't hear it when the sound starts, only once it's already in the, in the blend or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to, for instance, change parameters of, of that sort of sound, like how far apart are the frequencies from each other? How fast does it move up? Right. Do they change in loudness as they get higher or softer? Because that sort of trailing off might make you stop paying attention to the stuff that's disappearing and start paying attention to the stuff right. that's like ramping up. So you know I, the I don't Laurel, know how they produce um, those, but I'm sure they played around, you know, they, they tweaked some knobs until they found the one that sounded exactly, the yeah. most convincing. You know the Laurel Yammy or Yanny, whatever it was, yeah. phenomenon, Drew? No. It was that um, sort of like the gold dress is the dress gold or blue oh, thing. Yes, yes. But it was the audio version of that. And half the population roughly oh, yeah, heard yeah. Yammy Yanny. or Yanny or something, and half heard Laurel. And then somebody put together a video where they played it, they kept playing the recording continuously, but then changed the mix of the frequencies so they started blending out the low frequencies and all of a sudden your brain would switch what it was hearing laurel would become yanny and yeah i do remember that now i just you know that Mm -hmm. that was that it was definitely uh it was a meme for sure (laughs) but it fits right into this like what what i I suppose the term is psychoacoustics right it's that Mm -hmm. we're not computers that just take measurements of the world and go like that's that sound we First off, our ears are limited. I think it's, what, 20 hertz is our lowest frequency, roughly. That's 20 vibrations per second in the air. And then 20,000 hertz is the highest one. And then as you age, you start losing the high frequencies. It's like... And honestly, you could probably hear... You could probably feel 20 hertz more than you could hear it. Yeah, like when a TV's on. You know when you walked into your old house where you had those tube TVs? (laughs) And you could hear the, like, that... You know, you turn them on, they go like... You know? (laughs) And then they're left on with no input or something. And you just hear that high frequency or feel it even. And you're like, there's an electronic thing on that's bugging (laughs) my brain somehow. And and then you turn the TV off and you're like, oh, it's gone. But you didn't hear it as a note. It was just like a presence. Electronic uh, hum, noise, uh, interference stuff. That's usually due to like electrical 
frequencies. So like, yeah. uh, in the U S we have 60 Hertz, I believe AC power and other places with different outlet shapes, <laughs> they yeah. have different frequencies. And so you'll basically, you know, be picking up noise at just like very, very strong at 60 Hertz. And it's just like, Oh, that's cause everybody's electronics are running at 60 Hertz and right. stuff like that. Yanka, if you move your head slightly in the corner of our kitchen, I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but we have a Turkish coffee machine that we bought in Turkey. And so we had to buy a converter, not only to convert from 50, uh, 60 down to 50 hertz. 50 but, to 60, wasn't it? Or whatever the, yeah. that is. And then also from 120 volts to 240 volts. It's a step-up converter. Mm. Um, and now, because when we made the Turkish coffee without that, it just didn't really work. The machine didn't get hot enough. Mm. And it, the timing was off or whatever. Um, so it was but a weird $50 to spend. But now the coffee's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, um, the... the, the the whole like uh, electronics running at different uh, frequencies, like the power source being at AC power, that is, you know, uh, AC compared to DC. DC is batteries. They basically hold the voltage steady. AC is, you know, it's going up and down and up and down. And um, there's, you may find a reference for this later, but there was like a whole town that's power was such that their clocks were behind other towns. Because uh-huh. the clocks were supposed to be using that 60 hertz. What and year was this in? This was, I don't know, past 20 years. It's one of those urban urban legends. But uh, yeah, there, there's there's a lot that's based on those standards. Right. Because uh, if, you're, if you're different by 10 hertz. Yeah, that accumulates. And vibrations a second. That a second, to accumulate. yeah. <laughs> Every six seconds or so. <laughs> um, I want to throw out the Arthur C. Clarke quote. I forgot <laughs> to do that before. So the the goal here, me and Drew talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and the goal is to sort of like talk through some of this audio stuff um, and kind of arrive at a meta version of like, how the heck are you even hearing this podcast in your headphones or in your speakers or whatever? Um, right. From your mouth to my ears. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I'm breathing in air and vibrating sound out of my throat, and then it goes through this microphone and, and the journey will, will be what we we'll see how how detailed we can get but um the arthur c clark quote is and you probably heard this one any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic but then the flip side to that and i still haven't found who said this but it is any sufficiently analyzed magic is indistinguishable from science huzzah (laughs) (laughs) yeah which is the inspiring part of all this who doesn't like you know figuring out how the magician does his trick. I've always wanted to know how. And I sort of like for the people who are like, no, the the mystery and stuff. It's just like, yeah, but you know, it's not magic, but you know, there's some explanation. Like, why wouldn't you seek that out? And for me, I I think that's what I, that's where I embody like Kodawari in my own life is like just wanting to know more about how things work. Yeah. Right. Like you'll never understand everything and there's no one who, who does and and you know expertise is you know only as good as what we know right now but we're in a crazy age where you can really seek out a lot of different information you can find the people who are not yeah. amateurs to help you and help themselves figure out things it's, you know how you phrased it on the phone with me it was great it was like the spell books are published out there <laughs> yeah the magician's spell book is there for you to read and you know? we write them too don't yeah, yeah, discount yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think Wikipedia is not great for, you know, academic citation necessarily, but for your own exploration, it is really a great tool for you to 
be in a space where you don't know the questions to ask or even the words to use. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, blue link, blue link, blue link, new yeah. tab, new tab, new tab. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I did yeah, a little yeah. bit of that before this just to, you know, get the right words in my head. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. The Wikipedia rabbit hole, as I call it. Yeah, yeah. There, there and some- then you can you can go to the sources on the bottom and go down an even further rabbit hole of the actual you know, academic papers that people were quoting or sourcing for the Wikipedia article. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't like people who hate on Wikipedia. It's obviously not, um, you know, it it's shouldn't be your one and only source yeah. if you're trying to be an expert, but just for learning the basics of so many things, it's pretty amazing. And it's really empowering to think about how every page was created by someone like you. Like, not an expert who's trying to cite their own work, but mm-hmm. someone who's exploring a topic, trying to make it easier to understand. And through the the wisdom of crowds, we sort of reach some, not right. ideal, uh, but and some... And the edits come pretty quickly. If you put something false in a Wikipedia article, um, it gets changed fairly quickly. Although when I was um, a trumpet in the trumpet studio at Stony Brook, where I went to college, um, one of the trumpet players changed the Wikipedia page for Long Island and in the music section, it was talking about like Jones Beach Theater, this, mm-hmm. that. And then it said a sentence, Stony Brook University is particularly known for its music department. And then he added, and even more particularly for its trumpet studio. And it stayed up for like three months until it got deleted. Because <laughs> somebody was like, what's your source for this? He's like, oh, yeah, I don't, I just yeah, made it up. I'm me. just a trumpet player. And it's like, oh, that's not, <laughs> it's not in the yeah. uh, code of conduct or whatever. Yeah, it, but, you know, to to back up a little bit to the question of, like, what is analog and connect that to the the magic uh, narrative here, you know, there's this, there's this real physical world and then there's this sort of conceptualized, um, mechanized, invented world that we create through technology. And the way that we move audio around right now is by what discretizing it, basically taking this very smooth thing, which is the the vibrations of the air and turning it into samples. That's, that's one term that you might be familiar with from audio production is like, what's the sample rate or what's the depth, the bit depth. These are all terms that I think a lot of people have heard, but then they don't um, trace, you know, exactly what it means. Right. So the easiest way to say what a sample is, is think about a frame of a movie, Mm. right? Yes. One frame of a movie is like a still, right? It's a picture. Yeah. Right. It's a picture. So it's easier to build an intuition around. One one sample of an audio is basically like how displaced your eardrum was or how displaced your speaker was or something like that. It does not have a great uh, analogy because, you know, while video has time as part of it, Images do not. You could have something meaningful to perceive in a still image. Yeah. Audio is inherently temporal, right? Yeah. It moves in a direction. If you play a song backwards, it, it has a novelty to it because even though it's all the same samples, they're in a different order. Yep. Yeah. 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 And you could say it, for the picture analogy, so let's say you're watching a movie at 30 frames per second, that's like hearing audio at the sample rate of 128 kilobits per second which is what we export our podcast as when we upload it to the server. Um, so in, in the audio example, could you say that the snapshot, the photograph is 
of all the frequency bands in the human nope. hearing, you're saying, what is the volume of each of those frequencies? Is no, that fair? That's not fair, Crap. actually. So, I thought I had something. <laughs> yeah, so what you were describing is called like a spectrogram, right? Uh -huh. uh, a yeah. gram, a picture of a spectrum, which is the frequency ranges, right? So we know, you know, sort of relative pitch. You can kind of, you know, we don't all have Yonk as a perfect pitch, but we can understand is something higher or something lower. Mm -hmm. And that's very easily represented. But the part where, you know, time is baked into audio means that you can't say much about one sample. In fact, the most, you know, you can kind of say something about two samples, mm -hmm. but you need to know how fast they happen together. So, oh, sure. So, yeah. like, one thing uh, that is inherent to all these systems is sort of limits, right? You, you go from analog, which is basically, you know, there, there's sound that could hurt us, but we don't reproduce it. So, we don't build our, right. engineer our systems. Aren't there sound, um, they, they, they have them on some cruise ships. They're like sound cannons, basically, that concentrate painful sound so when it's pointed at you you you'll just i don't you know, know why cruise ships need that what? for pirates to to like oh. aim at pirate ships yeah <laughs> i'm pretty sure this is true i read it somewhere <laughs> i i mean i'm all for non non-lethal force but i i <laughs> yeah uh i i'm not in favor of technology for <laughs> warfare but um <clears throat> yeah there there's basically i, I was thinking of a, a jet plane taking off you know it, okay. there's an occupational hazard there where like yeah sure. the world has this sound in it but you want to basically protect yourself by putting you know a, a muffler essentially right like you're basically yeah. making sure that that vibration gets shook out somewhere else besides your ear you're right. Or bounced off the, the protective headgear or something. Or like at that. least the amplitude of that frequency, meaning is the frequency is how close the sound waves are. And then the volume of sound, meaning is it loud or soft, is how tall the sound waves are, mm -hmm. the amplitude. That's and a so, great, yeah, that, that's a great point. So the, the sample by itself tells you the amplitude, right? And the amplitude is, like you said, the loudness, mm -hmm. but there's sort of a positive and a negative like peak to peak there like if right. if we look at a sound wave and there's nothing going on like silence which you know, let's say you're in the anechoic chamber or something that that'll read like zero 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 right just a straight line right right like a straight line like a lake without any any waves like that crystal clear perfectly smooth mm -hmm. lake sure um maybe there's some noise maybe things are going up and down but here's the thing is that there's it moves around zero. Zero isn't the bottom. So mm -hmm. when you talk about sound waves, there's sort of an offset that we think of and that we call that zero. And you can think about the speaker. If you've ever looked behind sort of a, a speaker grate and you see this like circular thing that mm -hmm. is sort of pulsating, um, it moves out and it moves in. And so you can right. think of those positive numbers as it moving out and those negative numbers as it moving in. And again, if you were to just uh, hold, th this is something that happens in audio production when there is silence, you want to make sure you have like the right DC offset, the direct current that's going to your speaker should not be forcing the speaker outward if it's at rest, right? Because right, right, then right. you're kind of breaking your speaker. The speaker is supposed to be sort of going is back that and that forth around buzzing that sound. sound, maybe? Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, th th I'm talking more about like, your speaker could be fully out or fully in or just at the center. And if it's not moving, there's no sound, mm -hmm. right? But because it's 
designed to be more at the, the zero. Oh, you path. want it to default to the center and not right, default right. outer in. Yeah. Right. So even though it will sound the same, it could break your speaker. Yeah. Um, and that's something like digital audio production can fix. Um, but, you know, an important thing about what you said about the frequency is like how fast do things move up and down? Well, in analog world, things move as fast as they can in the medium that they're moving in, right? So that's why... Right. Like saying something above water to somebody who's underwater in a pool, it'll like right, right. it'll it'll change the way the sound is moving because or through a wall if you're listening to a conversation through a wall versus in the same room. Yeah, that that one's going through like two different boundaries. Right, air to, air wall, to solid, solid to air again. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, that's interesting, and that that'll um, probably attenuate as well as like it'll make the sounds uh, less loud but also probably change which frequencies are coming through right 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 so water or sheetrock or marble or all these different um there, there, there's, there's a lot or, of there's a lot of complexities to that uh because you that, that that gets more into the physical 3d world part of it right right like but, the but acoustics to, of a concert uh, hall or any of that kind of stuff yeah right which but, but let's I not wanted, go there <laughs> i wanted to say basically just like the analog world there's like not a lot of rules it's just the physics are sort of your yeah. Limit, right? Would it be fair to say analog signals are tech technically like contain an infinite amount of information, much like the coastline, like you could zoom in and, and get more and more detail, even though it wouldn't matter to human perception, let's say. Yeah, um, I, I think that that is true of a con any continuous curve, like right. the, the, the mathematical part where you could like differentiate every on every point of the line, like right. you could keep zooming in and keep zooming in and it's still defined. So, Yanka, um, the idea, like, if you saw a curved line like this of mm -hmm. a sound wave, if you zoom into a curve, you would say, okay, it's a bunch of straight lines, right? And then you zoom out enough, it looks like a curve. Mm -hmm. But if you kept zooming in, like, it, it's sort of like if I, if I, it's like an asymptote in mathematics, right? Like, if I say I'm approaching zero by cutting something in half every time. So, I start with one, then I have a half, then I have a quarter, then I have an eighth, then I have a sixteenth, then I have a thirty-second. Okay, we get it. <laughs> Uh, no, but it's more like and the I coastline. And I never actually get to zero. It's, most, it's more like the coastline thing, right? When you're up in the plane and you see the coastline, you're like, okay, basically it goes like a little squiggle like this. And then maybe you're mm -hmm. on the beach and you're like, oh man, that squiggle's a whole like pier. And then when you get right, close right. to the shore and you're like, oh, there's organisms living over here in this corner of this there's thing. There's a like, rock here, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But the thing is, again, even though the physical world might have that uh, sort of definition to it, our ears will have some limits. And so, like you said, like a maximum frequency, a, a minimum frequency. So when engineering of audio reproduction comes around, they're like, well, we only really need to make this work for us, right? We're not trying to make it work for, you know, some other organism that has different. Yeah. We don't care if the, if the, the fish in the sea can hear um, Led Zeppelin really well or not. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was the first vinyl. I, I I think I saw that today, like the nineteen, whatever year it was, a Led Zeppelin album. Um, well, I think it was the first one with a, a a different technology. Then that that sounds too late to be the first vinyl, but yeah, that's way too late. Um, but maybe it's like I stereo or something then. like that. But oh, it made it was the stereo one where they they make the groove at a forty five degree angle mm, so that so it can, can be both sides. have two channels. Yeah. yeah. So I mean that that's the sort of evolution of music technology is the evolution of things getting cheaper to produce mm -hmm. and easier to produce. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want the fidelity. You don't want your record to sound different than my record. You want it to be a perfect representation of the when somebody recorded, right? And you want it so that your customers have the same record player and can listen to all this different music. And it's the same, you know, when I listen to Led Zeppelin versus, um, you know, the Brahms Violin Concerto, I, w- I, want, I want it to sound like music on, from both. I don't need to have a different device for like the standardization, for example, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that is the part of the magic that blows my mind the most. Like, how is it that like, we cannot work together on so many things, but when it comes to like listening to music, we decided like 44.1 kilohertz, we decided 24 bits, we, like all these things. Yeah. Like, no, but I want it to sound good. <laughs> it's like, okay, right, right. get back to work. You know, uh, things, I think my, sadly probably just comes down to it makes money. And right, so right. you want it to make money easily. Uh, so let's like make it easily reproducible. But, um, you know, back to analog and digital, um, if you have the limit of the thing that's pressing that, um, that record or, you know, burning that CD, cause we're all using CDs still, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it has to do with the physical limits. Like how dense can you pack? How many minutes of audio sure. can you remember when MP3s came out? Like, Oh my God, I can have a hundred songs in my pocket. That's amazing. Right, right. CDs used to have 10. Yeah. So, I mean, now we don't even care to have the bits with us as we walk. We, we, we stream them. Yeah. <laughs> we stream them because that is now the cheapest, easiest, most, you know, and well-spread thing. And we can thing. compress them so that when I hit, on, when I click Spotify and I, 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 you know, start listening to a song, even if I'm on a road trip, my LTE connection can start that song essentially instantly. And the technology mm-hmm. behind that for me is magic, of course, right? I can, I know it's science, but you know, however it works and it, it says, okay, well, you're actually in only two bars of LTE. So we're going to start <laughs> streaming the lower bit rate yeah. version of the song. And then if you get a better signal, we'll make the quality, you know, all that stuff happens. Right, who wants, to, behind who the wants scene. to buffer, right? Like even the right. CDs had to buffer, right? Do you remember yeah. the Walkmans yes. that had a uh, skip protection? I remember right. as a kid, just like abusing my Walkman, just going like, like knocking on it until I saw that buffer shrink. I was like, yeah, I got to skip. Meanwhile, I was probably scratching the hell out of that. (laughs) Um, But again, I wanted to break it to understand it sort of thing. And, and, um, you know, almost on every measure, things have gotten cheaper and and denser. So you no longer need to really think about, do I have enough buffer space for like five seconds of the song that I'm listening to? You can buffer the whole damn song. Like right. the fact that uh, you can look at Moore's law to, to see sort of how this trend goes, but you know, things double pretty quickly uh, yeah. in terms of memory space, uh, but also like how fast things go. So we've, we're basically not solving problems the way we used to, because we are rich with data. We're rich with processing power and we're rich with uh, storage too, and and the whole internet right. part just like makes everything like oh I don't need it here I can just put it somewhere else. Right? Can I inject a question here? Whether yeah. it's analog or digital, or storage of you know, obviously most computer storage, or all computer storage is digital, but um, um, you can store on a record analog information. Um, I think Voyager spacecraft that we sent out into space in the seventies, mm-hmm. it's now, you know. 10 billion miles, it's at the edge of the solar system. We have a gold-plated record, like a record etched into gold of music, yes, but also of just information and mathematics and things like that. So 
what is information? Like, that's what we're storing. What, what even is that? Like, as a concept, or is that the same as saying data? There's uh, a bunch to unpack there. Because, like, the language that we use colloquially doesn't necessarily align with, you know, how things are studied or defined, right? But, yeah, I would say data is information. Like, you can mm -hmm. always say that. I think there's no case where data isn't information, um, there's something called information theory, which talks about like the limits of, you know, processes and is information preserved or not. Mm -hmm. Look up a guy named Claude Shannon for that. Um, early 20th century, if I remember my history, right? That's not that long ago. So like, we're still struggling with these questions of what is information? What what can I lose yeah. and still have the same? It's like right, information right, yeah, for yeah. what purpose, I guess, is what we're saying. And right. With art, you know, if you got a very pixelated version of the Mona Lisa, you could argue that that's a different piece of art now. Right, right. <laughs> it's no longer the original. But, but really it still anything, contains information, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And like now, and now we have sort of the opposite problem of like, now we can zoom in further than the human eye can see. And is that still like the same experience of the Mona Lisa too? Like that information's there, but every time you've seen it in popular culture, like you're not looking at, you know, stuff. There's also visual uh, spectrum of light versus like ultraviolet, infrared, stuff like that. So there, there's, right, right. there's a lot of information that we don't use. And so what is the useful information and can can I do without parts of it? So right. I'll give you an example back to the analog and digital. Um, we talked about how like time is very inherent to music, not like images, right? Where space is sort of the, the thing that we care about there and mm -hmm. light and stuff. But um, the minimum I need to tell you about, to characterize some amount of the what's possible with a digital system would be, okay, what is the time between two samples? Right. Mm -hmm. Because if I have a high frequency sound, I cannot go faster than from one sample to the next. So um, and you actually need to go up and down like a sine wave. So I may have been I may be flipping this, but I think there's a cutoff frequency of sampling rate over two because you need two samples. Isn't that why 44? 44.1 yes. exists because 20,000 hertz is the highest we can hear. So they double that and then right. went a little bit higher, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, you know, there maybe, maybe our perception doesn't really actually uh, work at round numbers. <laughs> so, yeah. So, well, I, I imagine that might be something with like the bits, bytes of a computer, right? Like making it, I, I don't know how that works, but. Uh, um, I, I, I don't know the history of why they chose that. I imagine that it was driven by what, what frequency range are we trying to cover? Yeah. Right. Um, because a frequency of zero is, is just that, uh, flat line that we were talking about. Right. Yeah. And as soon as I start to wiggle around that line, I start to move the speaker head or you start to flap your larynx. Uh, some air is moving at different speeds. And so what's interesting is that like, unlike a, a synthesizer, like that maybe like a monophonic and is producing like one note right on the, right, right on the like nose. Like our tuner is when we just hit a tuner, Yanka, it's just making that one frequency, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like a musical instrument. It's just one singular boring sine wave. 
Right. So yet when I play that same note on trumpet, you're like, oh, that's or on violin, or if you no, sing no, just it, trumpet. <laughs> it's a completely different sort of overtone series. I'm sure you guys have heard of. Like, uh, you know, you can kind of change the way you express that overtone series, but somewhat inherent to the instrument. Um, and the timbre that is the word we use all the time in music. The timbre, like if a conductor points to the trumpet section and says, "Trumpets, you're too bright. Can you play that with a darker sound?" Now, of course, we're not going into the trumpet and, and you know, typing in like what frequencies to attenuate mm-hmm. and which ones to, um, but we're we're in our mind imagining a sound that's darker and something about the way we adjust how we make sound means that the overtone sample within our sound will change such that the sound is less brilliant and bright and darker and, and we just do that automatically through our musical training. But yeah, the training is key. You, 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 you have to be shown it and you have to try it and you have to fail and you have to like sort of go to worry, like, you know, keep approaching what you think is the, the right thing until the muscle memory just kicks right. in and you understand this concept means that I play it this way and I can't right. describe how I play it differently, but I know it'll sound you know better. And you have to hear, you have to input enough data to your brain so that you can hear the differences between you know, like a conductor might point to the trumpet section and say, you're sounding too much like Bruckner, I need you to sound more like Brahms or something. And you would know what that means, like it means a rounder articulation and a darker sound, not not so heavy and, and brassy, but more blending. And, and I think probably the physics of that would be less higher frequencies. But again, it's not like we're thinking about the frequencies or the overtone series in our sound, we're just we've just automated that to some, some kind of magical process of the brain. Yeah. Or scientific. It, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. It's the part where I, I feel like, Oh, you know, what's great about music and, exp- and musical expression. There is some science behind, right? There is an amount of measuring it and saying, this is what a concert trumpetist does. And this is what a, middle school trumpeter does. And you can sure. look at how they use the instrument and probably get a lot out of that. Or you could look at the sound and, and, and really just understand, Oh wow. Like, you know, there's a lot here about timing. There's a lot here about stability. There's a lot here about, right. you know, you know what you're looking for versus I'm just trying to make a sound or something like that. Um, but the, the overtone piece of this is really cool because, um, you can see there's there's a reason that saxophones are sort of set up to be like the chorus like bass alto or bass baritone sorry bass tenor alto soprano Mm -hmm. it's because saxophones sound a lot like voices in their overtone series and like similar music can be played for like choirs and saxophones this is my very amateur understanding of the sort of uh, timbral design of saxophones at the time. Um, and the, the idea that you can elicit the same sort of reaction of like, Oh, you know, you know, we need a horn instrument. That's very voice. Like horn, mm-hmm. uh, a trumpet, isn't that, you know, a, a tuba, isn't that like they, the saxophone does sound like someone speaking to me. Although the Baroque trumpet sounds much closer to the voice than the modern trumpet does. Interesting. Um, different, you know, it's, so it's twice, twice the length, a totally different timbre different mouthpiece means a different harmonic overtone series within mm-hmm. the sound. And generally on Baroque trumpet, you can blend much more easily with strings and voice. 
um, and sort of mimic those sounds more than you can on a modern trumpet, which is built so well and technologically that it, you know, it makes certain things easier, but you're just like, you cut through the sound of a group much more easily, but it means it, you know, it just doesn't blend as well, like a piccolo trumpet that you might play Baroque music with. It's the small trumpet you've probably seen. Mm. Um, it doesn't blend very well with strings or voices compared to a Baroque trumpet. Um, yeah, I find that the different trumpet keys themselves, if you switch between a C trumpet and a B flat trumpet or a Baroque trumpet in the different keys, the, it sounds like a different instrument and it's a different, what we call timbre. And I, I always just wonder when I'm hearing this on Spotify, mm -hmm. somehow that recording captured these differences in sound waves. Clearly they have the right information so that my brain could hear ah, that must be Bach Collegium Japan. I can recognize the sound of that recording versus yeah. this English Baroque orchestra or whatever the case may be. Some of that is definitely from the source material. Some of that might be from post-production, right? It's like a, yes. a, a, someone in a magazine touching up the supermodels, whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. it's important to understand that like you being in the room is never going to be reproduced in the, the, the audio. And so there are tricks right. to sort of highlight and airbrush out the bad parts. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and we hear people do that all the time. Like um, whether, even if it's just adding reverb to an audition recording. Oh my God. Yeah. That I'm what it does is, is it so masks cheap. some of the reverb is so cheap and it's so it's powerful very cheap. because it really does take you from that. I'm, this is a, in the lab sound to a, in a, uh, in a cathedral, in a room. And and it it's yeah. so silly how simple it is, but it really transports you because there's more to the sound than the frequencies. Yeah. And obviously we'll hear that more stuff through frequency. There's only, it's only the sound itself, but you know, it's sort of the difference between seeing something on the, the staff in sheet music and hearing it in all the different venues that you could play it. And they're going to sound differently. Yes. Um, the, the, the nice thing is that, you know, there's a good range of frequencies that the ear is can can perceive and you can do a lot of expression within those. And so, again, the technology is basically saying, like, we don't need to support anything outside that range. And in fact, for most people, right. we can actually go tighter than that. And that's you'll if you play some of those things, you'll you'll hear, well, on a phone, I don't need perfect reproduction. I just need to be able to make out all the phonemes of the words that someone's saying right, right. properly. And who knows if that's like very culturally biased or not. Like, I don't know that much about language and phone technology, but oh, interesting. You know, maybe tonal stuff needs more. So maybe Chinese doesn't come across in like the that. phone frequency as much as um, English or whatever. I'm, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to venture a guess as to exactly. Just hypothetically, that but could yeah. be a thing because different phonemes need exist at different frequencies. Yeah. Or you could even say Spectrums. different like diction might be, you know, so maybe people, some people are good phone talkers and not because the phone is true. Not that's the that's people. also a factor. Yeah. <laughs> some people just suck at talking on the phone. Um, so what we're talking about here is, so now we've got our analog signal in the real world. It gets converted to an analog signal from this microphone. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's still an analog signal electrically. It goes into a mixer we have here, blah, 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 blah. Well, let's talk about that that part from the microphone to the wire in the microphone, right? Because that is an interesting, yeah. yeah, that's a pretty important factor. It, it blew my mind 
to realize that, and it's kind of simple once you think about it, that the microphone and the speaker are duels of each other. It's pretty mm. much the same technology. You're just sort of changing some of the parameters around. So, you know, uh, the way you go from air moving to electronic signals is through some physical thing moving. Just the same right. way that your ear has this like drum head that right. the air hits it and it shakes stuff that tingles your brain. Or the needle <laughs> on the on the record player is moving up and down. Yeah. And yeah, and the way the that it moves up and down conducts a signal to the speaker. And yeah. maybe there's some processing in the middle. But, um, you know, there's basically air hitting, a, I think it's called a diaphragm in, in microphone technology. I'm not I sure. Think so, yeah. Um, and it shakes that. And the way it shakes that, uh, you could have different. You know, uh, if you if you shop for a microphone, you'll see cardio cardiogram like pickups and Different stuff like that. Different patterns of yeah. how it picks up. Yeah, it, it's it's basically like an antenna. Instead of picking up radio waves, it's picking up your your air. Uh, compression. Yeah. And so there's different technology for different types of sources because again, right. nothing's perfect, but what you can do is you can sort of optimize for voice. You know, there are podcasting microphones versus drum microphones versus right. all the field recording microphones, all that sort of for stuff. For example, this is a dynamic microphone, so it sounds good when I'm talking into it. But if I talk over here, suddenly you can almost hear nothing. Right. Right. And if, if I was I in the room it. with you and my head was in the in the microphone yeah. spot, I'd be able to hear you pretty much the same because yeah. I have ears on two sides of my head. <laughs> or if I were recording um, w with this actual, this is a Zoom mic. If mm -hmm. I, I'm just using it as a digital recorder, but it's a condenser microphone. So if I turn my head, you'll basically hear pretty much the same amount of of sound. But this pattern is so local to the front of this that when I talk like this, it cuts in half, basically. Luke is currently talking to the side of his microphone. I'm turning the <laughs> microphone, and now I'm turning it back. Yeah, so, I mean, this is... I think this the whiskey is... hit me. <laughs> oh, are we supposed to be drinking? Not necessarily. I just... Ke Kevin brought a really nice bottle of whiskey over the other day, so I decided to pour a little bit. Nice. Um... Yeah, I All mean, right, so a, a microphone is a reverse speaker. It's a great summary. Yeah, you, I love you, that. Yeah. You're basically going in the opposite direction from from sound waves and air to electrical signals, and right. you know, I think we covered sufficiently the fact that there are different microphones for different types of pickup. Right? Should I turn the mic again? I can. No, that's. <laughs> I think you got it. Uh, so now, once it's once it's sort of uh, hit that that pickup. It's it's gone from an uh, an analog signal via air waves, air pressure, mm -hmm. to an analog signal in electronics. It has not gone digital yet. Right. When it goes over your XLR cable, in this case, as I see there, it's still analog. Okay. Analog. Then it pops into our mixer here. So the mixer, still analog, is going to mm -hmm. be doing these things, and and you know if. You could think of the volume knob as an analog operator too. Like you can continuously make it louder or softer. By the time you get into digital, there's sort of like it's steps in volume, right? Right. So you you want to you want to keep your signal like analog for a lot of different things. But by the time it's gonna go into a computer, it needs to be digital. And yep. so there's something called analog to digital converters or A to Ds and there's something called or ADCs and there's something called uh, digital to analog converters or DACs. And 
these are sort of your like quality bottlenecks. Like you'll you'll go shopping for an audio interface and you'll try to see like, okay, sure, yeah. what are its specs? And it's really talking about like this one chip that maybe has multiple instances, depending on how many channels you have. That is the bottleneck of like, how much fidelity can I maintain from the analog world into the digital world? Even if I had the most expensive microphone here and the most expensive mixer, if I put it into a crap digital recorder, it's still going to be crap. That's right. And and sometimes you want that. So like uh, there's like old technology that sounds warm. You know, people have all these qualitative sure. views on old tech, maybe because they're old. I'm not sure. But, you know, <laughs> you can come up with new stuff that sounds crappy, too, in a new way. But uh, essentially, you can artistically choose to have some degradation. You can make it sound like it went through a tape deck or something like that. Or, sure. Um, yeah. Another way to talk about um, this might be like going through an amp. You know, a guitar sounds great, but if you go direct from the guitar into the audio interface, it's not as great as if you went through an amplifier and then mic to the amplifier. And yeah. so these, this is just like extending this chain of audio uh, transformations. Even going in the room, as we were talking about reverb, that itself is a, is a transformation. So you can have yeah. amp A in room A or amp A in room B, and it sounds different. Yes, yes. Um, so once you get to the ADC, you're now going from, you know, the smooth curves. If you're really zoomed of in reality, close. the infinite information of, right. of analog. There, there's a lot there. And, and it's that discretization that I mentioned before. You're now choosing, uh, go back to the video analogy, you have your camera and you take a snapshot every every sample, okay? Yeah. And whether or not it's a high def camera or a low def camera is one parameter. That's that's sort of the resolution of the sample. Mm-hmm. And how fast you're taking snapshots is the other side. And we already talked a little bit about how your sort of max frequency range is controlled by how fast you take pictures. Right. right. So if, if your finger on your camera and the camera could actually do this, could snap 30 times a second, you would get per- perceptibly smooth motion. If you took it, you know, every half second or something, you would see that like stop motion, that like stroby thing, moving yeah. in that stroby kind of way. Yeah. And, and the same is true uh, with audio, except you will perceive it differently because the way that, you know, we perceive sound versus the way we perceive uh Right. Video or, or, or images. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this. You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.